Section 12 of Castles in the Air. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. Castles in the Air by Baroness Emushka Orksi. Chapter 6 Honor Among Part 1. Ah, my dear sir, it is easy enough to despise our profession, but believe me that all the finer qualities, those of loyalty and of truth, are essential, not only to us, but to our subordinates, if we are to succeed in making even a small competence out of it. Now let me give you an instance. Here was I, Hector Ratichon, settled in Paris in that eventful year 1816, which saw the new order of things finally swept aside and the old order resume its triumphant sway, which saw us all, including our God-given King Louis the Eighteenth, as poor as the proverbial church mice, and as eager for a bit of comfort and luxury as a hungry dog is for a bone. The year which saw the army disbanded and hordes of unemployed and unemployable men wandering disconsolate and half-starved through the country, seeking in vain for some means of livelihood, while the Allied troops, well-fed and well-clothed, stalked about as if the sacred soil of France was so much dirt under their feet. The year, my dear sir, during which more intrigues were hatched and more plots concocted than in any previous century in the whole history of France. We were all trying to make money, since there was so precious little of it about. Those of us who had brains succeeded, and then not always. Now I had brains. I do not boast of them. They are a gift from heaven, but I had them, and good looks too, and a general air of strength, coupled with refinement, which was bound to appeal to anyone needing help and advice, and willing to pay for both, and yet, but you shall judge. You know my office in the Rue de Nau. you have been in it, plainly furnished, but, as I said, these were not days of luxury. There was an antechamber, too, where that traitor, blackmailer, and thief, Theodore, my confidential clerk in those days, lodged at my expense, and kept importune clients at bay for what was undoubtedly a liberal salary, ten percent on all the profits of the business. And yet he was always complaining, the ungrateful, avaricious brute. Well, sir, on that day in September, it was the 10th, I remember, 1860, I must confess that I was feeling exceedingly dejected. Not one client for the last three weeks, half a franc in my pocket, and nothing but a small quarter of Strasbourg patty in the larder. Theodore had eaten most of it, and I had just sent him out to buy two sous' worth of stale bread, therewith to finish the remainder. But after that, 
you will admit, sir, that a less buoyant spirit would not have remained so long undaunted. I was cursing that lout Theodore inwardly, for he had been gone half an hour, and I strongly suspected him of having spent my two sous on a glass of absinthe, when there was a ring at the door, and I, Hector Ratichon, the confidant of kings and intimate counsellor of half the aristocracy in the kingdom, was forced to go and open the door, just like a common lackey. But here the sight which greeted my eyes fully compensated me for the temporary humiliation, for on the threshold stood a gentleman who had wealth written plainly upon his fine clothes, upon the dainty linen and his throat and wrists, upon the quality of his rich satin necktie and the perfect set of his fine cloth pantaloons, which were of an exquisite shade of dove-grey. When then the apparition spoke, inquiring with just a sufficiency of aristocratic hauteur whether Monsieur Hector Ratichon were in, you cannot be surprised, my dear sir, that my dejection fell from me like a cast-off mantle, and that all my usual urbanity of manner returned to me as I informed the elegant gentleman that Monsieur Ratichon was even now standing before him and begged him to take the trouble to pass through into my office. This he did, and I placed a chair in position for him. He sat down, having previously dusted the chair with a graceful sweep of his lace-edged handkerchief. Then he raised a gold-rimmed eyeglass to his right eye with a superlatively elegant gesture, and surveyed me critically for a moment or two ere he said, I'm told, my good Monsieur Ratichon, that you are a trustworthy fellow, and one who is willing to undertake a delicate piece of business for a moderate honorarium. Except for the fact that I did not like the word moderate, I was enchanted with him. Rumour for once has not lied, Monsieur, I replied in my most attractive manner. Well, he rejoined, I won't say curtly, but with business-like brevity. For all purposes connected with the affair which I desire to treat with you, my name, as far as you are concerned, shall be Jean Duval. Understand? Perfectly, Monsieur le Marquis, I replied with a bland smile. It was a wild guess, but I don't think that I underestimated my new client's rank, for he did not wince. "'You know Mademoiselle Mars?' he queried. "'The actress?' I replied. "'Perfectly.' "'She's playing in Le Rêve at the Theatre Royal just now.' "'She is.' "'In the first and third acts of the play she wears a gold bracelet set with large green stones.' "'I noticed it the other night. I had a seat in the parterre, I may say.' I want that bracelet, broke in the soi-disant Jean de Val unceremoniously. The stones are false, the gold struss. I admire Mademoiselle Mars immensely. I dislike seeing her wearing false jewellery. I wish to have the bracelet copied in real stones and to present it to her as a surprise on the occasion of the twenty-fifth performance of Le Rêve. 
it will cost me a king's ransom and her for the time being an infinite amount of anxiety she sets great store by the valueless trinket solely because of the merit of its design and i want its disappearance to have every semblance of a theft all the greater will be the lovely creature's pleasure when at my hands she will receive an infinitely precious jewel the exact counterpart in all save its intrinsic value of the trifle which she had thought lost it all sounded deliciously romantic a flavour of the past century before the endless war and abysmal poverty had killed all chivalry in us clung to this proposed transaction there was nothing of the routrier nothing of a jean duval in this polished man of the world who had thought out this subtle scheme for ingratiating himself in the eyes of his lady fair i murmured an appropriate phrase placing my services entirely at monsieur le marquis's disposal and once more he broke in on my polished diction with that briskerie which betrayed the man accustomed to be silently obeyed mademoiselle mars wears the bracelet he said during the third act of la Rêve. at the end of the act she enters her dressing-room and her maid helps her to change her dress during this entract mademoiselle with her own hands puts by all the jewellery which she has to wear during the more gorgeous scenes of the play in the last act the final of the tragedy she appears in a plain stuff gown whilst all her jewellery reposes in the small iron safe in her dressing-room it is while mademoiselle is on the stage during the last act that i want you to enter her dressing-room and to extract the bracelet out of the safe for me i monsieur le marquis i stammered i to steal a firstly monsieur eh, eh, ratichon or whatever your confounded name may be interposed my client with inimitable hauteur understand that my name is jean de Val and if you forget this again i shall be under the necessity of laying my cane across your shoulders and incidentally to take my business elsewhere secondly let me tell you that your affectations of outraged poverty are lost on me seeing that i know all about the stolen treaty which enough monsieur jean duval i said with a dignity equal if not greater than his own do not i pray you misunderstand me i am ready to do you service but if you will deign to explain how i am to break open an iron safe inside a crowded building and extract therefrom a trinket without being caught in the act and locked up for housebreaking and theft i shall be eternally your debtor the extracting of the trinket is your affair he rejoined dryly i will give you five hundred francs if you bring the bracelet to me within fourteen days b -b but i stammered again your task will not be such a difficult one after all i will give you the duplicate key to the safe 
He dived into the breast pocket of his coat and drew from it a somewhat large and clumsy key, which he placed upon my desk. "'I managed to get that easily enough,' he said nonchalantly, "'a couple of nights ago, when I had the honour of visiting Mademoiselle in her dressing-room. A piece of wax in my hand, Mademoiselle's momentary absorption in her reflection while her maid was doing her hair, and the impression of the original key was in my possession.' but between taking a model of the key and the actual theft of the bracelet out of the safe there is a wide gulf which a gentleman cannot bridge over therefore i choose to employ you monsieur ratichon to complete the transaction for me for five hundred francs i queried blandly it is a fair sum he argued make it a thousand i rejoined firmly and you shall have the bracelet within fourteen days he paused a moment in order to reflect his steel-grey eyes cool and disdainful were fixed searchingly on my face i pride myself on the way that i bear that kind of scrutiny so even now i look bland and withal purposeful and capable very well he said after a few moments and he rose from his chair as he spoke. "'It shall be a thousand francs, Monsieur Ratichon, and I will hand over the money to you in exchange for the bracelet. But it must be done within fourteen days, remember?' I tried to induce him to give me a small sum on account. I was about to take terrible risks, remember, housebreaking, larcency theft call it what you will it meant the police correctional and a couple of years in new orleans for sure he finally gave me fifty francs and once more threatened to take his business elsewhere so i had to accept and to look as urbane and dignified as i could he was out of the office and about to descend the stairs when a thought struck me where and how can i communicate with monsieur jean duval i asked when my work is done i will call here he replied at ten o'clock of every morning that follows a performance of le rêve we can complete our transaction then across your office desk the next moment he was gone theodore passed him on the stairs and asked me with one of his impertinent leers whether we had a new client and what we might expect from him i shrugged my shoulders a new client i said disdainfully bah vague promises of a couple of louis for finding out if madame his wife sees more of a certain captain of the guards than monsieur the husband cares about theodore sniffed he always sniffs when financial matters are on the tapis. "'Anything on account?' he queried. "'A paltry ten francs,' I replied. "'And I may as well give you your share of it now.' I tossed a franc to him across the desk. By the terms of my contract with him, you understand, he was entitled to ten percent of every profit accruing from the business in lieu of wages.' But in this instance, do you not think that I was justified 
in looking on one franc now and perhaps twenty when the transaction was completed as a more than just honorarium for his share in it was i not taking all the risks in this delicate business would it be fair for me to give him a hundred francs for sitting quietly in the office or sipping absinthe at the neighbouring bar whilst i risked new orleans not to speak of the gallows he gave me a strange look as he picked up the silver franc spat on it for luck bit it with his great yellow teeth to ascertain if it were counterfeit or genuine and finally slipped it into his pocket and shuffled out of the office whistling through his teeth an abominable low deceitful creature that theodore you will see anon but i won't anticipate the next performance of le rêve was announced for the following evening and i started on my campaign as you may imagine it did not prove an easy matter to obtain access through the stage door to the back of the theatre was one thing a franc to the doorkeeper had done the trick to mingle with the scene-shifters to talk with the supers to take off my hat with every form of deep respect to the principals had been equally simple i had even succeeded in placing a bouquet on the dressing-table of the great tragedienne on my second visit to the theatre a dressing-room door had been left ajar during that memorable fourth act which was to see the consummation of my labours i had the bouquet in my hand having brought it expressly for that purpose i pushed open the door and found myself face to face with a young though somewhat forbidding damsel who peremptorily demanded what my business might be in order to minimize the risk of subsequent trouble i had assumed the disguise of a middle-aged anglish red side-whiskers florid complexion a ginger-coloured wig plastered rigidly over the ears towards the temples high stock collar nankeen pantaloons a patch over one eye and an eyeglass fixed in the other my own sainted mother would never have known me with becoming diffidence i explained in broken french that my deep though respectful admiration of mademoiselle mars had prompted me to lay a florid tribute at her feet i desired nothing more the damsel eyed me coldly though at the moment i was looking quite my best diffident yet courteous a perfect gentleman of the old regime then she took the bouquet from me and put it down on the dressing-table i fancied that she smiled not unkindly and i ventured to pass the time of day she replied not altogether disapprovingly she sat down by the dressing-table and took up some needlework which she had obviously thrown aside on my arrival close by on the floor was a solid iron chest with huge ornamental hinges and a large escutcheon over the lock it stood about a foot high and perhaps a couple of feet long there was nothing else in the room that suggested a receptacle for jewellery this therefore was obviously the safe which contained the bracelet after the self-same second my eyes alighted on a large and clumsy-looking key which lay upon the dressing-table and my hand at once wandered instinctively to the pocket of my coat and closed convulsively on the duplicate one which the soi-disant jean duval had given me i talked eloquently for a while the damsel answered in monosyllables but she sat unmoved at needlework and after ten minutes or so 
I was forced to beat a retreat. I returned to the charge at the next performance of Le Rêve, this time with a box of bonbons for the maid instead of the bouquet for the mistress. The damsel was quite amenable to a little conversation, quite willing that I should dally in her company. She munched the bonbons and coquetted a little with me, but she went on stolidly with her needlework, and I could see that nothing would move her out of that room, where she had obviously been left in charge. Then I bethought me of Theodore. I realized that I could not carry this affair through successfully without his help. So I gave him a further five francs, as I said to him, it was out of my own savings, and I assured him that a certain Monsieur Jean de Val had promised me a couple of hundred francs when the business which he had entrusted to me was satisfactorily concluded. It was for this business, so I explained, that I required his help, and he seemed quite satisfied. His task was, of course, a very easy one. What a contrast to the risk I was about to run! Twenty-five francs, my dear sir, just for knocking at the door of Mademoiselle Mars' dressing-room during the fourth act, whilst I was engaged in conversation with the attractive guardian of the iron safe, and to say in well-assumed breathless tones, Mademoiselle Mars has been taken suddenly unwell on the stage. Will her maid go to her at once? It was some little distance from the dressing-room to the wings, down a flight of ill-lighted stone stairs, which demanded cautious accent and descent. Theodore had orders to obstruct the maid during her progress as much as he could, without rousing her suspicions. I reckoned that she would be fully three minutes going, questioning, finding out that the whole thing was a hoax, and running back to the dressing-room three minutes in which to open the chest, extract the bracelet, and, incidentally, anything else of value there might be close to my hand. Well, I had thought of that eventuality, too. One must think of everything, you know. That is where genius comes in. Then, if possible, relock the safe, so that the maid on her return would find everything apparently in order, and would not, perhaps, raise the alarm until I was safely out of the theatre. It could be done, oh yes, it could be done, with a minute to spare, and to-morrow at ten o'clock Monsieur Jean Duval would appear, and I would not part with the bracelet until a thousand francs had passed from his pocket into mine. I must get Theodore out of the house, by the way, before the arrival of Monsieur Duval. A thousand francs! I had not seen a thousand francs all at once for years. What a dinner I would have to-morrow! There was a certain little restaurant in the Rue de Pipot, where they concocted a cassolette of goose-liver and pork-chops with haricot beans which—I only tell you that. How I got through the rest of that day I cannot tell you. The evening found me quite an habitué now, behind the stage of the Theatre Royal, nodding to one or two acquaintances most of the people looking on me with grave respect and talking of me as the eccentric milor. I was supposed to be pining for an introduction to the great tragedienne, who very exclusively, as usual, had so far given me the cold shoulder. Ten minutes after the rise of the curtain on the fourth act, I was in the dressing-room, presenting the maid with a gold locket, which I had bought from a cheap jack sparrow for five-and-twenty francs, 
almost the last of the fifty which I had received from Monsieur Duval on account. The damsel was eyeing the locket somewhat disdainfully, and giving me grudging thanks for it, when there came a hurried knock at the door. The next moment Theodore poked his ugly face into the room. He too had taken the precaution of assuming an excellent disguise, peak cap set aslant over one eye, grimy face, the blouse of a scene-shifter. Mademoiselle Mars, he gasped breathlessly, she's been taken ill, on the stage, very suddenly. She's in the wings, asking for her maid. They think she will faint. The damsel rose, visibly frightened. I'll come at once, she said, and without the slightest flurry she picked up the key of the safe and slipped it into her pocket. I fancied that she gave me a look as she did this. Oh, she was a pearl among Abigail's. Then she pointed unceremoniously to the door. Milor was all she said, but of course I understood. I had no idea that English milors could be thus treated by pert maidens. But what cared I for social amenities just then? My hand had closed of the duplicate key of the safe and I walked out of the room in the wake of the damsel. Theodore had disappeared. Once in the passage the girl started to run. A second or two later I heard the patter of her high-heeled shoes down the stone stairs. I had not a moment to lose. To slip back into the dressing-room was but an instant's work. The next I was kneeling in front of the chest. The key fitted the lock accurately. One turn, and the lid flew open. The chest was filled with a miscellaneous collection of theatrical properties, all lying loose, showy necklaces, chains, pendants, all of them obviously false, but lying beneath them and partially hidden by the meretricious ornaments were one or two boxes covered with velvet such as jewellers use. My keen eyes noted these at once. I was indeed in luck. For the moment, however, my hand fastened on a leather case which reposed on the top in one corner, and which very obviously, from its shape, contained a bracelet. My hands did not tremble, though I was quivering with excitement. I opened the case. There indeed was the bracelet, the large green stones, the magnificent gold setting, the whole jewel dazzlingly beautiful. If it were real, the thought flashed through my mind, it would be indeed priceless. I closed the case and put it on the dressing-table beside me. I had at least another minute to spare, sixty seconds wherein to die for those velvet-covered boxes which my hand was on one of them, when a slight noise caused me suddenly to turn and look behind me. It all happened as quickly as a flash of lightning. I just saw a man disappearing through the door. One glance at the dressing-table showed me the whole extent of my misfortune. The case containing the bracelet had gone, and at that precise moment I heard a commotion from the direction of the stairs, and a woman screaming at the top of her voice, Thief! Stop! Thief! Then, sir, I brought upon the perilous situation that presence of mind for which the name of Hector Ratichon will forever remain famous. Without a single flurried movement I slipped one of the velvet-covered cases, which I still had in my hand into the breast-pocket of my coat. I closed down the lid of the iron chest, and locked it with a duplicate key, and I went out of the room, closing the door behind me. The passage was dark. 
The damsel was running up the stairs with a couple of stagehands behind her. She was explaining to them volubly and to the accompaniment of sundry half-hysterical little cries, the infamous hoax to which she had fallen a victim. You might think, sir, that there was I caught like a rat in a trap, and with that velvet-covered case in my breast-pocket by way of damning evidence against me. Not at all, sir, not at all. Not so is Hector Ratichon, the keenest secret agent France has ever known, the confidant of kings, brought to earth by an untoward move of fate. Even before the damsel and the stagehands had reached the top of the stairs and turned into the corridor, which was on my left, I had slipped round noiselessly to my right and found shelter in a narrow doorway, where I was screened by the surrounding darkness and by projection of the frame. While the three of them made straight for Mademoiselle's dressing-room, and spent some considerable time there in uttering varied ejaculations, when they found the place and the chest to all appearances untouched, I slipped out of my hiding-place, sped rapidly along the corridor, and was soon half-way down the stairs. Here my habitual composure in the face of danger stood me in good stead. It enabled me to walk composedly and not too hurriedly through the crowd behind the scenes, supers, scene-shifters, principals, none of whom seemed to be aware as yet of the hoax practised on Mademoiselle Mars's maid. And I reckon that I was out of the stage door exactly five minutes after Theodore had called the damsel away. But I was minus the bracelet, and in my mind there was the firm conviction that that traitor Theodore had played me one of his abominable tricks. As I said, the whole thing had occurred as quickly as a flash of lightning, but even so my keen, experienced eyes had retained the impression of a peaked cap and the corner of a blue blouse as they disappeared through the dressing-room door. End of chapter 6, part 1 Read by Lars Rolander